welcome to the Michigan Murders. This is Laura. Wait, and what? I'm Stephanie. I how did I do that? It's I like know, I Laura. answered my work phone. This is Laura. Speaking, how are you today? <laughs> Apparently, very frazzled. <laughs> I swear, today's like a Monday in disguise. Yeah, Monday pretending to be a Wednesday. Yeah, for sure. I had to go into town for some stuff and. Just frazzled. I had to go into the store twice. Gotta love it. Yeah. I th- am I first this week? I feel like I am. I think you are. Okay. All right. Well, this one is a case from Washington Township that I found through Google, I think. I don't know. I was Googling some stuff. I saved a bunch of links. This is one of them. <laughs> 50-year-old Mary Lou Johnson lived in her boyfriend's home in Washington Township with her three sons, ages 15 to 21, and her boyfriend, 70-year-old retired businessman Roger Blanchard. After midnight on June 15, 2007, police were called to investigate the claim of Mary Lou as a missing person. She, her purse, and her cell phone were missing. However, her car was at the house. Police searched the home and found no signs of foul play. With no other leads, police checked Mary Lou's cell phone records. Those records revealed that her last two phone calls were from David James Wright, a local plumber. Wright had borrowed $50,000 from Mary Lou's boyfriend, and he wanted the additional $50,000 Blanchard said he would loan him. Good God. Yeah. First of all. Here's fifty grand. Dear God. (laughs) However, Blanchard refused because he had failed to pay any of the money back from the original 50000 yet. Wright voluntarily spoke to police, but insisted he had only exchanged one phone call with Mary Lou, despite the phone records showing otherwise. Police began surveillance on Wright when his statement of where he was at the time did not match his cell phone records. Wright told detectives he spent the money on a girl at the casino, his enclosed trailer, some home things, and that he loaned 20000 to his brother-in-law. <laughs> A reason for not paying any of the 50000 back yet was because he said his brother-in-law did not pay him back, his house went into foreclosure, and he lost his wife and truck. How- okay, pause. Yeah. How... Does your house go into foreclosure when you have $50,000 lying around? Apparently he spent it all. (laughs) On a woman, but then he's bitching that his wife left him. I I wonder why, bro. No, the the wife thing is, or the girl thing is after the wife. I'll get into that here in a second. Oh, goodness. (laughs) And it's not any better for her, though. Susan Wright filed for divorce on July 12, 2006, about three weeks after Wright received the 50000 So that was probably about the time he loaned his brother-in-law the money, too. Susan obtained a PPO against Wright about the same time she filed for divorce, and she accused him of breaking her nose. She said he also took an anger management course, which she said, quote, didn't help. The divorce was finalized December 5th, 2006. So roughly a year had gone by and Wright hadn't started to repay any of that money yet. 
you've had a year. You can at least make some payment rather than fifty dollars something. Yeah. yeah, at least making an effort. <sighs> Things started to go wrong for David Wright because of a gas station employee who knew Wright from his frequent visits into the store. On June fourteenth, two thousand seven, Wright entered the store but the employee could tell Wright was not his usual friendly self. The clerk noticed there was a footprint and blood on Wright's shirt, and when asked, he said that a co-worker cut his finger and kicked him. The recording of the visit was turned over to police. Yeah. Good old gas station employees <laughs> doing the Lord's work. <laughs> Sometimes that's what they do. <laughs> Seems like. On June twenty second, 2007, a West Bloomfield police officer was on patrol and came upon a pickup truck at the side of the road. Wright was at the back of the vehicle, and the officer stopped to see if he was in need of assistance. Wright showed the officer a possum in a bag and said he was giving the animal a proper burial. The interaction was captured on the officer's video recorder, and Wright's family owned a cottage nearby, and he was seen there that day. But why would a possum need a proper burial? What is going on here? Right? This is all like a Um, bit insane. Yeah. On June 23rd, 2007, Wright was seen trying to visit a pawn shop, but it was closed. Later that day, he went to a car wash, but did not wash the exterior of his pickup truck. Instead, he cleaned the inside of the vehicle and removed trash bags and a shovel. After he left the car wash, police recovered the discarded items and found the garbage bags had blood and hair in them. The officers conducting surveillance requested a traffic stop occur because Wright had an improper plate on his vehicle. Wright was placed under arrest for improper plates, no registration, and no proof of insurance. After Wright was handcuffed, a pat-down search found a vial containing diamonds. The diamonds had been removed from a necklace owned by Mary Lou. After his arrest, Wright initially declined to speak to police. However, he later agreed to give a statement. Wright said he had done some work at Blanchard's house and needed money. Wright said he was talking to Mary Lou when he saw a knife in his bag. He grabbed the knife and told her to get in the trailer while he went into the house to get a check from her boyfriend. Wright claimed the murder was an accident, and he tried to, and as he tried to get in his trailer, they both tripped, and he fell on top of her. Right. It's all utter nonsense. The quote from the court document says, he poked the victim with his fishing knife. Oh, just... Just, just a poke. However, a Macomb, a Macomb Daily... I'm sorry, I'm yeah. sorry to stop you, but why does that sound like when you go to a gynecologist? Like, you're just going to feel a little pinch. Yeah, just a little pinch. Just, just taking out a piece of your uterus. It's just a Meanwhile, it feels like your body, your soul is leaving out of you're your... You're dying. Yes, <laughs> your, your whole soul is out of your body and you're ceasing to exist over a little pinch. I just slightly poked you with this knife. Yeah, it's poke. And now you're dead. Poke. Yeah. And that's <laughs> like a Facebook poke, but with a knife. Yeah. Court document says poke. However, 
A Macomb Daily article says, quote, Wright did not explain how Johnson suffered six stab wounds to her chest, with one stab piercing her heart and killing her. He said he merely poked and moved Johnson a couple of times to determine whether she was dead, the report says. The article also claimed her throat was slit, but I didn't find specifics in the court document I found. So all of that is more than a poke. <laughs> Correct. You're right. So they kind of don't go together with that one. Wright then went into the house and took Mary Lou's purse. When he returned, he saw there was blood dripping from the trailer onto the driveway, and he moved the trailer and he used the hose to remove the blood from the driveway. Wright claimed he originally buried Mary Lou near his family cottage. However, Wright was concerned cadaver dogs would locate the body and learn that a carcass could confuse the dogs. So he dug up her body, weighed it down with blocks, dropped her in the lake, and then placed a dead possum in the former burial site. So that's the proper burial he was given the possum was in her original grave. Wow. Nice. Yikes on bikes. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes on bikes. Um, it, and he, he doesn't admit really what he did either, because at trial, Wright denied any participation in the murder, instead saying he saw Mary Lou holding her neck when her boyfriend approached and stabbed her. Oh, of course. He's going to blame Blanchard for that one. And Wright claimed he was instructed to dispose of the body and helped Mary Lou's boyfriend move the body into the trailer. And you're just going to do that. Yeah. Which I don't know why he would unless it was, hey, I'll give you $50,000 if you help. But he didn't get that 50000 So that theory of his is kind of out the window. And then despite Wright's trial testimony, the jury convicted him of one count of larceny in a building, one count of kidnapping, and one count of homicide felony murder. He was sentenced on July 8th, 2008 to life in prison for both the kidnapping and homicide charges. Wright appealed in 2009 through the state of Michigan Court of Appeals, but it was affirmed. According to the appeal, Wright alleged that the trial court erred by denying his motion to suppress when police failed to scrupulously honor his right to counsel and manipulated defendant's mother into deceiving defendant to waive his rights and give a statement. We disagree. So that was them going, no, we didn't force you to talk. You waived your right. And Wright is currently 53 years old and is being held in the Chippewa Correctional Facility in the Upper Peninsula. The story was originally found through Macomb Daily. There was a MLive article. Most of the information through the appeal was found at law.justia.com. I got some from the Michigan Offender Tracking Information System, or OTIS. And there's a investigation discovery show where murder lies, enemy inside the gates, talks about the case of Mary Lou Johnson and features interviews with her family, loved ones, and law enforcement. Wow. That is something. Yeah. Man. What a character. Oh, for sure. Just, just go throw a dead possum in here. It's totally confused everyone. Oh, but let me just put on put it on her boyfriend. Yeah. At trial. Just blame someone else. 
last minute. Just enough to right. get some reasonable doubt in there, maybe. Like he was hoping. And I will apologize now for any background noise. I can't hear much with my headphones, but I do hear, hear a little bit. And then I also hear the people above me stomping. So as my mother's trying to put my son down, I hear him babbling. And then I hear people stomping. So I apologize for edit- editing. That's probably going to have to come from that. <laughs> I'm very sorry. Sorry, I heard my dog barking at one point when I was talking. I don't think I'm going to be able to edit that out. <laughs> gonna be dog barking in the background okay and my story today is on the robison family on june 25th of 1968 the robison family richard robison his wife shirley and their four kids richie gary randy and susan were all vacationing at their lake michigan cottage just north of goodhart michigan near the straits of mackinac five gunshots fired with a 22 semi-automatic rifle were fired through the back window killing Richard. The killer then entered the cottage through one of the doors that was unlocked and murdered the remaining five family members with a 25 caliber semi-automatic pistol. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Richard and Susan had also been bludgeoned with a hammer that was then found at the crime scene. Jeez. Overkill. Very much that. Shirley Robinson's body was especially posed so that when the crime scene was found, it would lead the police to think that the crime was sexual in nature. So they wanted to think that, like, somebody came in to rape her and then just killed everybody. Weird. Like, that was gonna... Yeah, like, what? Doesn't really make sense. Bloody footprints on the floor led investigators to find that one person committed the murders... The bodies weren't located for 27 days, and due to, the, due to the conditions, the bodies were found in an advanced stage of decomposition. Yeah. Wow, that's a long time. A very long time. Like, it just kept making me think, why did nobody go to look for them? Like, yeah, they went on vacation, but you would think after 27 days of not hearing from family members. But it's also 1968. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. By the second week of the investigation, which had begun on Monday, July 22nd of 1968, the Michigan State Police and the Emmett County authorities suspected Richard Richard Robison's employee, 30-year-old Joseph R. Scalaro III. And I think I pronounced his name correctly. Scalaro. He had not been seen or heard from for more than 12 hours on the day of the murders, And his alibis were all proven to be invalid. Oh. Which is a common theme in this story. (laughs) Everything that he states gets proven to be invalid. Wow. (laughs) Like, bro, get get it together. Get it together. He had also purchased both of the murder weapons determined by the police to have been used in the Robinson family murders. Specifically, a 25 caliber Jetfire automatic Beretta pistol and a 22 caliber AR-7 Armalite semi-automatic rifle. They did put the numbers in the article or the Wikipedia. I'm not quite sure why. <laughs> like, I don't need to know the number of the gun, but... Just in case you hear... Extra info. ...how they worked <laughs> and want to get one, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. 
The four caliber shells found at the cabin were forensically compared to their ballistic markings to several of the twenty-two caliber evidence shells known to have been fired by Scalaro at a family firing range in 67. Hmm. And at which time Scalaro used his missing twenty-two caliber Armalite rifle. Missing. Yeah. Because that's, again, what he claims. <laughs> I say as I blink and tilt my head. <laughs> the two sets of shells were an exact match. Even though Scolaro claimed to have given this weapon away, a neighbor let police know that he had seen the twenty-two caliber AR-7 rifle at Scolaro's house not long before the murders. Hmm. So again, invalid, sir. No, weird how it just vanished into thin air. Right. Scolaro's missing... 25 caliber Beretta automatic pistol, which he also told police he'd given away prior to the June 25th murders, was matched forensically in similar class characteristics to a second identical 25 caliber Beretta pistol that he produced for police on the second day after the bodies were found in Goodhart. (laughs) Sir, it's like the guy is just like, "Mm, nope, not it. (laughs) You're like, guy. (laughs) Both guns had been purchased by Scalaro on the same day, February 2nd of 68. Also found at the murder scene were several Sacco 25 caliber spent cartridges. A rare 1968 Finnish brand sold only for a limited time of two weeks, of a few weeks, I'm sorry, a few weeks in Michigan, which was from January to February of 68. Um, prior to the murders. So you're going to use a rare gun. How dumb. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, what? It was documented by investigators that one of the actual few, few Sacco ammunition purchasers in Michigan had been Joseph Scalaro III. Dun, dun, dun. Nobody's surprised. You know. Why not Not just uh, get the golden gun from James Bond (laughs) and use that? Purchase it. Make sure everybody knows your name's on it. Yeah. Use it. And then go, not it. Yeah. Is it me? I wonder if that's where Shaggy got the idea for his song from. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. You didn't say that. And of course, he had purchased that on February 2nd of 68, which was found to be those other guns purchased the same day so i mean like come on what wow <laughs> I, scalaro's statements that he'd given away both of the missing murder weapons and the saco ammunition prior to the june uh, 25th killings was also proven to be a lie i mean oh man you mean expected. he wasn't a really nice guy that just liked to give stuff away all the time Weird. Like, you're going to buy expensive things, I'm guessing, because guns aren't necessarily cheap. Yeah. And rare Even ammunition. Yeah. None of that would be cheap. Absolutely not. And even back then, like, even if you change prices for inflation, whatever the price it would have been then still would have been considered, I'm sure, a lot of money then. 
Yeah. It's not like you're going to buy a gun for, you know, a penny. You're just giving away money at that point. Like, right. (laughs) I'm going to believe that, sir. Yeah. During the long murder investigation, it was determined by a forensic accountant that more than $60,000 was missing combined from both of Richard's businesses. Hmm. I guess that's where he got some gun money from. (laughs) (laughs) $60,000 back in the 60s, too, is like... Yeah. A lot of stinking money. That would be a lot of money. Right. The two Robison businesses had been left in the care of the suspect, Scalaro, prior to the murders. Shocking. (laughs) Right. The two investigating police agencies involved in the case presented their combined evidence case reports to the jurisdictional prosecution on December 17th of 1969. The detailed report implicated that Joseph Scalaro was the sole perpetrator of the mass murder crime. In mid-January of 1970, Emmett County Prosecutor Donald C. Noggle decided not to bring charges against Scalaro at the time, citing the two missing murder weapons and the absence of his fingerprints at the crime scene. Right. I mean, I get wanting a conviction, but even back then... Right. It doesn't seem like everything was uh, had, they had to be enough. as scientifically proven as it is now. Correct. They had enough for the sixties. Like, come on, <laughs> you had you had enough at that point. During the course of the investigation, Scalaro failed two lie detector tests. A third test was judged to be inconclusive as to what the truth was. So, also. Two failed and one, eh, we're not sure. Yeah. It was also noted that he tried to deceive the polygraph interviewers in the pre-test interviews. <laughs> really? So how much non-evidence evidence do you need? Because mm. at this point, like, what? I guess they really wanted to be able to prove their case. I, I don't know. Right. Four years later, a newly elected chief prosecutor in Oakland County, L. Brooks Patterson, believed that the Robison crime had originated within his jurisdiction and reopened the prosecution. Thankfully. Good for them. Right. When the prime suspect, Scalaro, learned of the impending possible charges and arrest, he committed suicide. Wow. On March 8th of 1973. Because... Nothing quite screams guilty, like making sure you kill yourself before you're arrested. Yeah, he got four years to be free and then just takes the takes that way out. It's interesting. Right. Correct. Scalaro left behind a typewritten or typewriter note on which he wrote, I'm a liar, a cheat, a phony. Okay. With a list of people he had swindled in multiple business schemes. Multiple business schemes. He also added a handwritten note to his mother on the same sheet of paper saying, I had nothing to do with the Robisons. I'm a liar, but not a murderer. I'm sick and scared. God and everyone, please forgive me. It was a lot easier to disappear back then. I'm kind of... (laughs) Right. 
And of course, he's not going to mention, I didn't do it on the typewritten note that police are going to get. But he, on the handwritten one, specifically to his mom, I didn't do it, mommy. Yeah. Why would you then add God and everyone, forgive me, but I thought you didn't do it? Well, I'd say God because the suicide and everyone because he supposedly swindled a bunch of people. I think those were his words. Uh, See, I don't know. I don't buy it. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't. I I don't trust anymore. So I'm like, "Mm, why? (laughs) Since Michigan law does not permit an open murder case to be officially closed, the suicide of the prime suspect, Scalaro, placed the case in the inactive files. Oh. Yeah. Because they couldn't close it. Yeah, so technically He's still dead. a cold case because they can't convict him. Correct. It's a bummer. Many questions to this day still remain unanswered. Over the many years, other crime theories have surfaced, but to date, none have ever been proven, like, factual. Hmm. They're just kind of like, sure. <laughs> like, it's like, maybe, uh, yeah. Possibility, but we're not going to look into that <laughs> kind of a thing. People who personally knew Richard Robison were quoted to the in the two police reports filed on the case as saying they had never known a better family man, friend, or business partner. Just kind of sad. Yeah. Like, what sad. was the reason? Cardi B screaming, what was the reason? That's what I feel. Like, an entire family? Yeah. Man. Six people. Over 60,000, which I mean, back then, though, was probably equal to like millions. Yeah, but I mean, you could still go after the one guy and leave the family alone. What the heck? Right. Hi. Oof. People. (laughs) That's all I can say is people. People. Yeah. People. They're men. (laughs) those damn men (laughs) well thank you for listening everybody stay safe out there and watch out for the crazies bye thank you for listening to this week's episode the music titled teller of the tales was provided by kevin mcleod and can be found at incomtech.filmmusic.io